Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and I have the absolute privilege today of sitting here with Daryl Johnson, uh, one of my professors, uh, one of the fathers of the church in the city of Vancouver, and it is a privilege to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Daryl, for coming on. Thank you, Brett. It's a joy to be with you. Why don't you tell us, uh, for some, your name is uh, certainly going to be known. Others uh, may not know you yet. Uh, some may know you through your books. Some may know you through your preaching, your, uh, your, the audio that they've listened to, or others may know you personally. Uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of a window into your life? Who are you? Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? Oh, my goodness. T- tell us a little bit of that. Okay. Um, I'm 71 years old, and I have known Jesus for 67 years. When I was four years old, I was living with my grandmother while my younger brother was being born. I don't know how long I was with her, but it felt like a really good long time. And um, she would listen to all kinds of, of programs on the radio and would regularly pray with me at the end of the presentation. So I have seen, um, seen the face of Jesus oh. since I was a little boy. I wished I had been faithful all those 67 <laughs> years. Um, so I'm a very... A very fortunate human being. Wow. Um, I surrendered to the call to ministry on April 4th, 1968. That was okay. the day that Martin Luther King Jr. I was, was going to say, that's a date I know, yeah. Yes. Uh, they were playing all of his sermons uh, on the radio overnight, uh, through the evening. About midnight, I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, that's what I want to do. I want to preach you and your gospel in such a way that people's lives um, and and nations' lives are changed, and if so, here I am. Wow! I that next morning called my grandmother to tell her what I had done, and she says, "When you were a little boy, uh, four years old, at my house, we got through listening to Charles E. Fuller, Old Fashioned Revival Hour, and you got up on the radiator and you said, Grandma, when I grow up, I'm going to preach Jesus.' When you were four, four, oh, wow. and she said, "I've been praying that every day." So I owe um, uh, my faith to my grandmother and call to ministry to yeah, my grandmother. Yeah. Uh, 1968, I'm still at university studying physics, the University of California, San Diego. Finished that Which degree. Which is a natural thing to do when you feel called to be a preacher. Oh, absolutely. Go study it's physics. It's just a perfect preparation. <laughs> no, I was already in the program, and I, I felt the Lord say, no, okay. this is good discipline. Yeah. I did switch my minor from economics to um, uh, Greek philosophy, so I could have some humanities okay. before going to seminary. Went to Fuller Seminary. I was ordained then as a Presbyterian pastor yes. in PCUSA and uh, learned then the tension of living in a denomination that's wrestling with its foundations yeah. um, and served Presbyterian churches in California. I also served for four years in Manila yeah. as a pastor of the Union Church of Manila. Then in 2000, we were called to Vancouver okay. and called to uh, Regent College. And so you, you were a professor at Regent College back then. Uh, and, I, and what was your what area of oversight did you have? Well, the title was Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology. Okay. So I had oversight over everything yeah. in the Master yeah. of Divinity program. Yeah. Uh, I specialized in preaching, yeah. uh, Christian education and discipleship. Um, all those courses that Regent students now take, I've taught yeah. in one way or another. Wow. Uh, it was quite a load yeah. because um, when I got there, they had a cooperation with Cary Seminary. Oh, so okay. a number of faculty from Cary were teaching in the Master of Divinity program. But Regent and Cary were moving in different directions. So part of my job actually was to reconfigure the Master of Divinity for Regent itself. And so I was 
very involved in all of that. And that was year 2000? Came in two th- fall of 2000. Okay, right. and fall of 2000, you come, you begin preaching, uh, or be- begin uh, teaching at Regent College. Right. And then uh, at, at some point, and I'm not sure when this happened, you you left the, the, the role of professor to move into the role of pastor again. Again, yeah. And how, how did that come together? In 2009, uh, the congregation at First Baptist persuaded me that God was calling me to that pulpit. Yeah. Interestingly, I had substituted a number of times when they made transitions. Okay. So they knew me. Yeah. I knew the church. And it, yeah, it was clear. Okay. Um, it was also time to at least return part-time to the parish so that my teaching at the college would still be right. on the ground right. and not just theory. So uh, in 2009, then, I became the pastor of the Baptist Church. So this Baptist Church adopted a Presbyterian pastor. Well, that's that's um, not a bad thing. I had a great conversation, and I've talked about this many times with many people in the city, but it seems as though... Uh, not to the diminishment of denominations, but we've we've moved in a direction toward a post-denominational reality in some of the post-Christian cities yes. we live in, because yes. we are identifying and collecting with one another on uh, maybe it's primary, secondary, and tertiary theological issues, but we're not dividing in the ways that we used to divide. So that's Praise actually God. interesting. Yes. So you are a Presbyterian, you ordained Presbyterian minister. Yes. Uh, professor, and then Baptist pastor. Correct. And and. I mean, what did you learn in that, going from one uh, area of the church, like you said, denominational tensions and and wrestling with the foundations? I know there's lots in the Presbyterian Church in the United States and in Canada where they've wrestled with what it is we believe uh, and and then moved through that. Is that same thing happening within that Baptist denomination, or was uh, was it a great affinity for you to kind of connect in that way? Well, I think it was actually First Baptist. Okay. So is that particular congregation is what... Um, I felt comfortable in, and um, uh, yeah, they, they just they just welcomed me, and um, ha- we had a great time. Uh, I stepped down after seven years for health issues. I had had a stroke, and I've recovered from it, but uh, I could still preach. But you know that there are other responsibilities for a lead pastor, and I simply just couldn't keep all those balls in the air mm. and do that well. So it was clear I should step down. And so you stepped down in, was that? 2016 or so. And then uh, I know that you've maintained a role of mentoring uh, in some fashion over time there as well. But now you've moved back into, in your, I don't know what you call this phase of your life. I, I've heard you say that you're busier in your retirement than you've ever been before, but it doesn't seem you're very retired, so. No, I'm not. No. You're, you're, you're teaching uh, again? Part-time. Okay. Yeah, I'm called teaching fellow. Okay. Uh, so that means that you're not part of the regular faculty, i.e. Oh, okay. don't have to go to faculty meetings. Oh, sort of thing. okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm praying about just what should be my role yeah. right now. Um, and I'm enjoying mentoring. I, I don't know if I use the word mentoring, encouraging, okay. hanging out with folks like you, right? Uh, just to hear what God is doing and uh, to be able to bless you and encourage you in that, in, in what the, uh, the Spirit of God is doing with you. I do a lot of conference speaking, and I think right now I'm feeling called more to write. Hmm. To I'd like in the next few years to empty my files okay. and put them all in some kind of form uh, that makes them accessible to those who can use the material. Well, I, I first uh, learned who you were uh, before I moved to Vancouver through Discipleship on the Edge, your, oh. your book that walks through the book of Revelation. 
and um, I, and I then, as I was preparing to move to Vancouver, we moved here in 2011, so spring of 2011. From where? From Alberta. Okay. And when we moved here, uh, I was looking at sort of the, the churches in the city and thinking, are you sure, Lord, you want us to plant a church here? I'm not going to be able to preach Daryl Johnson. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be able to preach like him. I'm not going to be able to, you know, you have Darryl, uh, Dave Coop, uh, Dave and Cheryl planted Coastal now 25 years ago. Uh, at the time, Norm Funk, you know, in the city and, and with Westside Church, and we didn't know that we were going to get connected with them, really, uh, as we did. Um, you start to look around the city, Ken Shigematsu, and, and there's these different names of people that you look at and you, you think very highly of, and then you go, well, what, what could you possibly have for us in the city, and why would you call us to do this? And so it was a little, it was interesting, you know, I was trying to explain this to somebody who, uh, he was actually a, a pastor in Manhattan at the time, and he was telling me how intimidating it was to preach in Tim Keller's city. And I said, well, you might have Tim Keller, but I've got Norm Funk and Daryl Johnson. So, you know, we were just kind of laughing as a couple of young church planters that, uh, you know, God would God would see fit for a bunch of us to do work together. And I, I think it's just, uh, it's been so encouraging to meet all of these fathers of the faith in the city, for me anyways, it's been very encouraging. I'm not sure if they're mutually encouraged, but it's very encouraging to meet them and go and really see, I guess, the welcome that we felt coming into the city of Vancouver and just the established church here recognizing that there was a need for more work to happen, more churches to be planted, more people to be on the ground. And, and we've, you know, we've been really greatly welcomed. And I mean, it's been six years now. Now it's my turn to turn around and see who's showing up and, and do the same. Very good. So it's, uh, it's a privilege to be able to do that. But I felt like that uh, well, I'm glad you're here because you're a great preacher. Oh well, well thank you very much. <laughs> you're a good student of the word. I was I just I'm really taken by uh, the your care and tenacity. I mean, I've read a couple of your papers you've mm. done for courses, and and you saw what I wrote on your paper. Uh, Outstanding yeah. work. So well, it's good. I was here. I was I was fishing for that compliment, so I'm glad <laughs> I finally got there. No. Well, thank you. That's gracious of you to say. Um, Excuse me. <clears throat> what? Um, so, 19 years now, you've been in the city of Vancouver. You spent part of it as a professor. You spent part of it as a, a local church pastor. Um, now doing a hybrid of of professor work uh, and and encouraging uh, pastors in the city, uh, thinking about writing and in the future. What is different today about the church in Vancouver than 19 years ago when you arrived? Very good question. How could I summarize this? Well. Uh, uh, two things, much more hopeful hmm. and much more vibrant. <clears throat> when we first came here, uh, there were vibrant churches, First Baptist, Coastal's Building, 10th is Building, Broadway, yeah. um, Glad Tidings, Willingdon, um, and then a lot of uh, smaller churches yeah. that uh, there was life and vibrancy, but there was this cloud of, oh my goodness, we're in a secular city. Is this ever going to work? How How is the Lord going to work here? It was that tone. Mm. And now I don't pick up that tone. There's <laughs> much more hope. Okay. Now, the way i you know, meeting with you, meeting with others, are going, yeah, the Lord's at work here. He's doing a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest change is attitude. Oh. Yeah. From... So sort of the posture of interaction with the culture around us then in that sense of it not being overwhelming but being that there's something there's something oh. overwhelming that's not overwhelming that maybe was then uh, who am i to say these things i i don't know if it's so much the posture of the culture is overwhelming as a greater sense of jesus is bigger than we thought that's right yeah uh this is he's not caught off guard by this yes uh the, the cultural context 
is not, does not thwart his work. It does not overcome who he is. Yeah. So I think it's a greater faith that, that no matter what the cultural dynamics are, Jesus can break through. Yeah. Um, and, oh yeah, there was that when I first came, but I think I'm picking it up all over the place. Yeah. Now, at the same time, boy, uh, the conversations we have, uh, the fact that there is this huge cultural cloud, mm. it's thick. Um, it's really thick and it's dark and, and right beneath the surface, it's, there's hostility. Yes. You can see with my hands, I'm yeah. <laughs> holding this big cloud around us. And, and that has gotten greater. Huh. No doubt about that. Uh, that's, that's more challenging. That's more problematic. Um, but in the midst of it, okay, the Lord's in this. Yeah. He'll show us what to do. And, and, and he's been in other cultural contexts, and he's won millions of people there too. So right. let's join him. Yeah. I, I, that's, I've been here for six years, and it seems to me that there is more... <sighs> you said vibrancy in the church now, and, and I think that's a good word. It seems that in other cities I've been in, put it this way, and other pastors that I talk to across our country, there can be uh, broken relationships between churches. There can be hostility between pastors. And sometimes that's because of old wounds that then got picked up and, and adopted by second and third generations worth of, of Christians in the city where we don't do anything with that church because that church is ABC or XYZ. Uh, where here it seems like there's a lot more... Um, maybe not on a, on a deep level, but a lot more partnership or at least agreement. Like we're praying for you and we're champions for you. And that's across denominational lines. That's across theological, some secondary issues. And I was trying to explain this to a friend of mine who pastors in a place where there are a lot more Christians. I said, you, you fellowship with people who you only agree on everything with. And I said, if that was the case, I'm not sure we'd be able to talk to anyone because there's so many different divergent tertiary issues that we can look at, but in Vancouver, there's not enough of us to segregate ourselves into tiny little enclaves here where we agree on everything. So we actually get along really well around the Apostles' Creed, around the Nicene right, Creed, right. around you know some basic statement of faith things. And yeah, we may have a different view of, of soteriology. We may have a different eschatological opinion, but but we're not really ma majoring on those minors here because that that minor thing actually will bring uh, will bring us in, uh, out of relationship rather than into relationship. Absolutely. So I, I've seen that over the years yep, that, that we've that's been accurate. Here. Yeah. And so, so when you first came in, was it like that? Was there a, was there a, a kind of a, a, a collegiality and a friendliness within churches in the city? Uh, that's a, another good question. Um, I don't think so. Hmm. And I think that was because so many were hunkering down. Yeah. That was the feeling I got. Um, but. But I, I've seen it change now. So you, this phrase you had, we're rooting for each other. We've got each other's backs. We're, we're, we're praying that each of these ministries will thrive. I, I think that is new. Okay. Uh, how new, I don't know. Yeah. Um, because of hope. And I think it's because there's a, a more Christ-centeredness hmm. to the movement in Vancouver. It has to be. Part of it was a desperate situation. You had to go to what we agree on. You had to go to the foundations. Yes. And and Jesus is pretty good at his foundation. <laughs> He's pretty sufficient. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, as long as, you know, you can walk with brothers and sisters you know who love Jesus, well, we can disagree on a lot of things. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, for the sake of mission. Right. For, for the, the sake, sake of, of the city. Yeah. And, and I think it's to be able to say we don't necessarily, you know, I have a friend of mine in the city where I've said to him, I would never be a member of your church. <laughs> uh, and, and he says the same to me. Because we disagree on some things that are that are decidedly secondary issues, but they become important on a local fellowship basis. Uh, but we encourage each other. We've partnered together. Wonderful. And, and I think if we can continue to model something like that, where there's a generosity of spirit um, towards those things, because we have the same goal in mind. We want to see the kingdom come in Vancouver as it is in heaven. Uh, you know, you talk about the, the Christ-centeredness that you've seen um, kind of growing in the city of Vancouver over these 19 years that you've been here and, and a draw. And as you said, he's a great foundation to build on if we're going to build on a foundation. Uh, most of that would be communicated through the pulpit. Um, that Christ-centeredness, I believe, uh, is something that is led from the pulpit and then it's modeled in the relationships. When You've been an exegete of Scripture for a long time. You've been a person who is passionate, gifted, and I think compelled by the text of Scripture to preach it in this manner. So you you are an exegete of Scripture, and you uh, such a gifted preacher, but I know that there's a lot of hard work and dedication that goes into that as well. Can you just speak to what happens with the diminishment of the text of Scripture? And maybe, you know, there's times where preaching, especially in the Western world, can there can be an elevation of pragmatic or or even just good spiritual principles and the, to the detriment of Scripture. The things maybe aren't necessarily untrue, but the text is not being taught. The text is not driving the ministry uh, that is coming from the pulpit. It can be driven by personality. It can be driven by gifting. It can be driven by, quote-unquote, relevance. Um, can you just speak to what happens when, when the text is diminished to the, to the advancement of those other things? The church will die. <laughs> And that's a controversial way to put that. Yeah. But I would want to say to any preachers listening here, we have one job, and that is we are delivery persons. We It's not our message. It, we have the message of Jesus Christ given to us in the Scripture in thousands of different ways. And our obligation in that preaching moment is to say what he says in the text. And if we drift off from that and it starts to be our own opinions about things or our own vision of how things can work or our own spinning of spirituality, yeah, the Lord blesses that for a while. But after a while, people won't grow. Hmm. Um, I, I, I travel around a lot and I am hearing this hunger, especially in millennials. Uh. Millennials will say, well, I, can, I can go online. I can get all that stuff. Yeah. But what I need is an encounter with Christ in the Scripture like I experience when you do what you do. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fancy communicator. You've heard me. I, I try to be clear. I, I, I pray my heart out. So, you know, and the Spirit of God is working there. I have all that confidence. But all I'm doing is saying what is in that text yeah. in a way that points to the, to the Jesus of that text. Um, and I, I would want to say to all of us in preaching in Vancouver, Jesus shows up most powerfully and most faithfully when you open the book and you say what is in the page in front of you and the... the, 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 the the power of the 
presence of Christ that emerges from that mm. um, is what will change people's lives. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess what I, as I look at the bigger picture, uh, maybe I could summarize it this way, then you come back at me. I think there is a crisis of confidence mm. in the scriptures as the living word. And therefore, we've got to do some schmoozing. Yeah. We've got to do some uh, adding on. We don't use those kind of words. Yeah. But the text is, itself is not good enough. Yeah. Um, uh, recently, uh, a, a person heard a sermon I preached long ago. And uh, she wrote me to say that 25 years ago, I came to Christ on that sermon. Wow. But here's the interesting thing she said. It wasn't because of the sermon you mm. gave. It was the joy and conviction with which you read the text. Mm. <laughs> she says, by the time you finished reading that text, I'd surrendered to Christ. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And I felt the Lord bringing that back to me to say, yeah, it's the, it's the, the word read in the presence of human beings in the power of the Spirit where Jesus breaks through and makes himself real. Um, um, so that's all. That's, that's my, 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 my encouragement to all of us. Yeah. And, I, and I, I praise God you do that, Brett. Well, I try. Yeah, you do. I certainly that's, do. That, that's what people say. Yeah. That's why people come. Yeah. Um, I, I have fallen in love with the millennial generation. Yeah. And I am finding that millennials are hungry yep. for truth mm -hmm. that is taught with love and conviction and points to to Jesus. And they'll stay as long as you've got time. I, I found the same thing and I you know, people do you hear the there's jokes and, and things made about millennials this and millennials that. I don't our whole church is run by millennials. Our whole church is populated by millennials. The people serving on Sundays, the people in nursery taking care of children, the people teaching kids, um, largely are millennials. And I think sometimes people now, it's become such an ingrained thing to, to sort of joke about. They don't recognize how old some of the millennials are. <laughs> like, I am an elder millennial. Yeah, you are. <laughs> and and uh, and sometimes that means <laughs> I don't me. think like maybe some of the rest of them um, in, in certain ways, and especially the way that I grew up in a small town in Alberta, uh, so, you know, some of my younger millennial friends go, you're not really a millennial. But what I do see is a generation of people who have been fed advertising their whole life. Right. They have lived entirely in the era. It doesn't matter how old they are. They've lived, if they're under 40, basically, they've lived their entire lives in uh, the 24-7 news cycle. They've lived in the midst of spin on every level, in every newspaper, in every television program. Uh, they are people who have been assaulted by agendas their entire life. There, there has never really been a neutral moment in history. I know that, but this last 30 years-ish in Western society has meant that they have got a message being driven at them all the time. And what they find is that message isn't that compelling. None of those messages actually are that compelling. You don't want to build your life on your political alignment. You don't want to build your life on the retirement fund or the car you drive or even the neighborhood you live in. or And, and so many of those things are advertised to the, this generation of millennials and then Generation Z to follow. That you have, I think, a real hunger for something that is transcendently true. 
And so they maybe can get transcendent experiences in different ways, but it, 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 it peters out, it drifts off, and they want something that's grounded. And so when we planted our church six years ago, one of the values of our church is that we're, we, we say we're grounded. Uh, and we're grounded in three things. We're grounded in scripture, we're grounded in the culture of this city, but also in the history of the church. And I think the history of the church gives us an untapped resource to say, look, this thing's not shifting. 2,000 years, Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The Word of God has not changed. Correct. We've got manuscripts that take us back. We've got great text critics that can show us. We're not changing anything here. This is an enduring uh, part of our Christian heritage. And so the issue is, I, I think, if we think a little too much of ourselves, we think we've got too many good ideas to share. And I realized very early on when I started preaching, I did not know enough. And this is going to maybe... Uh, out me as a person who should have done a little more training before I was given the pulpit. But when I was about 25, maybe 26, I started preaching on a very regular basis on Sunday mornings. And I realized very quickly that I had not a lot to add. I didn't know what to talk about. And, and, and this is the thing, I didn't grow up in the church, and so I had never been part of a congregation that taught exegetically through Scripture, that taught expositionally in this way, where you move through a book of the Bible verse by verse, passage by passage, all the way through it, trying to help people to understand it and preach the gospel from every passage. I had never been part of a church like that, and Daryl, this is gonna, this is insane a little bit. I didn't know that existed. I didn't know there were people doing that. I had only ever experienced topical preaching, and sometimes it would be attached to a text, but quite often it was a, a it was a, you know, the, the diving board that they jumped off of into the pool of their own thoughts, and so that was the model I had been taught. And so I remember starting to preach through the books of the Bible because I didn't know there was, I, I didn't have enough to say. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll just ground it in the word because at least if I give them the text, I've, they've got something to work with. And I felt like the Holy Spirit had something to work with if I at least grounded everything I was saying in one text. And then I learned there's this entire group of people who have been doing this for 2,000 years. And I just had not been trained in that model. And I, I hadn't yet finished even an undergrad uh, in Christian studies that I have, I, I was only partway through it. And I thought, we just need to teach the text. And I found out there's a lot of people that agree with me. There are a lot of people who agree I, with I, I didn't invent looking at books of the Bible. <laughs> and, it, you know, once I realized that, I, it brought me into a whole different world of the church, uh, a whole different historical view of things. And and we are grounded in that history of the church. I think it's a way that that people whose lives have never had any stability can listen to the text taught, the same text that Christostom would have taught, the same text that Augustine was working with, the same text that you, you pick your heroes of church history. This is the same text Luther fought for. This is the text of scripture that Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching in this most recent era. You know, you have, we're working with the same text around the world in different cultures, and it's something we can anchor ourselves in. And I think that's why a millennial group of people whose lives have never had any stability uh, are really attracted to something like that. Amen. Amen. No, I, absolutely right. Daryl, it's so encouraging uh, to have this conversation with you. And as somebody who's been in Vancouver now for 19 years and has been involved in multiple levels of ministry, if I was to ask you, it's 2019 right now, if I was to say it in 2039, 20 years from now, what would your hopes be for the church in Vancouver? You know, what if you got to to sketch out on a whiteboard or, or whatever your dreams of what it would look like and, and how the church could grow in this next season of time, what would you, what would you hope for? Very good question. 
so much. Let me try to zero it, focus it down, zero, zero in on the essence. Um, I would, I would love to see all the people in the churches passionately in love with Jesus. Mm. Um, second, that everyone would recognize that he or she is a missionary and evangelist. Related to that, third, that everyone would recognize that the Holy Spirit is the great missionary evangelist and is at work in every place we go. And so forth, that people have been trained to be sensitive to what the Spirit's doing trained to be able to then articulate um, who Jesus is when the opportunity comes. So 20 years from now, this great, great army of, mm. of lay evangelists who just speak about Jesus naturally all the time, yeah. and then tons of people are finding him. <laughs> Beautiful. You talk about this. I've heard you say this before, that evangelism is just joining a conversation the Holy Spirit's already been having with someone. Yes. And, and what, what can we do today in Vancouver to gain a hearing for the gospel in ways that maybe we've not been successful at in the last few years? Like, there's this ability to gain a hearing, even just to share the basics of the faith. The person may just reject it on the spot. It may be a seed that just lingers in their heart for 20 years before somebody comes along and says something else. We don't know what God is doing because he is at work in those people's lives. Uh, what are some of the things we can do to gain a hearing here in Vancouver today? Well, the we, um, I th the, you, you correct me, I may be wrong on this. I think the we comes down to the I. Oh. Um, in that, I don't know that uh, where the culture is allows for a we to speak into it, to be anything. We don't exist in the culture. Hmm. Right? We're, not, we're off the radar. Okay. So it comes down to then individuals. I don't mean by that individualistic and non-communal, sure. sure. but so, that, so then what can I, the eyes, the thousands of believers yeah. individually, what can we be doing? I think it comes down to love. Huh. Do I love the person in front of me because I recognize that even if I don't, Jesus through his spirit is loving that person. Wow. So if I can live in a constant posture of of being attentive to the fact the person's being loved, entering into Jesus' love for that person, that's, I think, how we get the hearing. Yeah. Now, um, one of the ways, one of the simple ways that I'm finding it's really wonderful is in restaurants. You just pay attention to the waiter. <laughs> right. I, I've gone out to dinner with different fo Christian folks, and I'm sometimes appalled yeah. by how waiters are treated. Yeah. You treat that waiter um, out of that posture of that person being loved, you will get into a conversation. I do every single time. Right. Uh, I get to ask questions. My wife will say afterwards, you, you asked that person that question? Sure. It was natural at that point. 
because I could tell that person was responding to the love of Christ. They have they don't have a clue what's going on. Right. It doesn't matter right now. Um, so those kinds of things where we're just being attentive to what uh, the opportunities all all the way around. Yeah, so entering into this uh, act of love and this conversation the Spirit's having with everybody who you meet. And I think that happens in the workplace so often. You know, we try and talk about our faith and our work around here and. You know, my workplace and your workplace are the easiest places in the city to be a Christian. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the people that we get to uh, lead and pastor and, and care for and, and preach to, it's not easy for them all the time. But it is something where I think in a, a posture of attentive love, just in the moment when somebody overreacts to something in a meeting and, and you follow them into their office and just say something simple like, are you, are you doing okay today? It, it can change the game. It's huge. And it's just to pay attention. Um, for us, I mean, we've talked about this here uh, at Christ City a number of times, but just the the idea that not everyone in the in the city who's not a follower of Jesus, not everyone's actually rejected Christ. Some have. Some have heard who he is, and they've said, I'm not interested. But most haven't. They have not, not had an opportunity to reject Christ. And Correct. so it's we can't assume for them that they're not interested uh, prior to, to to seeking to gain a hearing for what what the truth of the gospel really is and how it does affect and transform a person's life, I'm I'm interested to know, and and this is partly a selfish question because um, I'm I'm a bit younger uh, in this, and and I do um, have the privilege of being able to say I have some spiritual fathers in the faith, and I know not everyone can say that, and um, I, I I come from a really wonderful family. And have a good relationship with my parents, but they're they're not uh, spiritual parents to me in the same way as some of the spiritual fathers of the faith in the city. And and I have some spiritual mothers too who have been uh, tremendously encouraging and helpful, and and have no problem challenging me, and uh, and all of those things. For you, I know that you are seen this way in the city by uh, another generation of pastors, but I also know. Uh, because some of them have told me this, how encouraging you are to them and how you have sacrificially given of your time to stop and encourage pastors in this city. Maybe just talk a little bit about what that means uh, as we grow generationally here and, and, and how I think if you, if you could say back to uh, you know, 37-year-old Daryl, do this when you're pastoring a church. What, you know, what would you speak to a person like me about even some of these things. You've been encouraging as a spiritual father. I now want to take on a, a responsibility of trying to encourage those who are coming behind me. What would you say uh, to 37-year-old Daryl if you had an opportunity to? Oh, good question. You're good, Brett. <clears throat> okay, I want to be careful here and get that down down to... Yeah, the, I asked about three questions and yeah, that. That was unfair. So that's, no, that's okay, because uh, there's so much. Um, number one, do whatever it takes to stay close to Jesus. Hmm. That's, your, that's your number one job. Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Hmm. So, uh, and if I, if I can help you find a way to do that, I, I'll do it. It's, it's different for everybody by personality and by gifting, but stay close to Jesus. Number two, soak in Scripture. Soak, soak, soak all the time. You live in the book. Number three, uh, learn to pray. <laughs> uh, that's your number 
three job. Number one, <laughs> stay close to Jesus by doing your number two job, soaking in the scripture, and then leading to your outward job, so to speak, of praying. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're a priest as well as a preacher, yeah. and priests intercede. That's, yeah. that's our uh, fundamental role in the body. If you're married, uh, now you love your wife. Um, if you have kids, then you, you pour yourself into your kids. Um, they come before the church. Mm-hmm. I recently heard someone say that this church was inviting them to come and uh, very excited. And they said, it'll be a demanding call, uh, uh, but we're asking you to come. And the, and the person said, I'll give you my second best. And they said, what do you mean second best? I'll give my family first best. Then I'll give you second best, but I'll give you my best second best. And I thought, okay, priorities, right. Yeah, um, yeah so that's, those are the things oh, that good. I try to, to, to focus on. Uh, everything else emerges out of that. Mm. Uh, your vision for ministry, yeah. your exercising of your gifts, um, your strategic thinking. Your planning, all of that emerges out of abiding in Christ yeah, and soaking in the does. Word. It does. I, I've had uh, a conversation um, w- with a group of pastors. I had the privilege of being able to to coach and train a little bit church planters, and they talked about. I, I sort of laid out an example for them of the mission, vision, and values of Christ City and how we developed that, and walked them through the process of developing that and what that looks like. and And that was one of them. He said, "Yeah, that's fine, but you haven't told us how you did this yet." And it was. It seemed as though it was a surprise that it all came through lengthy seasons of fasting and prayer. And I just said, "Well, it seemed natural to me. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. This is. <laughs> I don't know how to put language to it. I don't know how to prioritize the right things. It's just are you paying attention to what the Spirit's saying as you abide? And and that that, that can sound like a cheeky answer to somebody who's not maybe entered into it yet, and then maybe their early days of of leading a church. And you say, "Well, you just need to spend some time in prayer." Like, this stuff is forged in prayer. Like, you pay the personal price uh, of, of abiding in Christ in this way, but you do it for not only you, but for those who God is calling you to lead at this particular season, which includes your wife, your children, and, and the church. And it was, it's interesting, because I remember thinking back years ago and going, I don't know how these guys come up with some of this stuff. And I, I now realize it's not that they're that smart. It's that it's if you are consistently abiding in Christ, he'll lead you. Because this is the thing that's encouraged me so much. He loves, Jesus loves his church more than I do. Amen. And so he <laughs> he wants it to do well. And, and as long as the church you're leading is Jesus' church, you should have an expectation, an expectancy that he is going to help you. And that you are, uh, are uh, not a cog in the wheel in a minimalistic or Marxist sort of way, but you are just part of how he is leading his church. And so you can expect him to to supply the needs that are there. Preach it. Yeah, but so oh. the, but that stuff is it's so foundational and it sounds so simple and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. All of those things, staying close to Jesus, is as hard as I, I I just I love him so much, and I know he loves me more than that. And it's hard. It is hard to do so to abide in his word. And for for me early on, and I'm sure you've experienced this, the Bible became my job. Yeah. And so it was yeah, work good. to be Glad into it. That. And, and boy, I mean, it, it started to, I still loved it. I, I loved my job, but my job from seven till five or whatever the hours of the day um, would have a lot of scripture infused into it. And then I would go and be my, and it started to bifurcate my personhood where 
I wasn't going to the scriptures devotionally as much as I used to, and, and all of those things happen. So it's so encouraging to hear just a foundational thing that you would say. Yeah, in fact, can I speak into that yeah, a little bit more do. clearly? I'm glad you mentioned that, Brett. That, that's a key thing. Um, by, saying, by saying soaking in the word, yes, for preaching, but you, you saw I didn't go that way really quickly. That's it's right. for you. Yeah. So I would encourage you and others, you have your own soaking uh, discipline, but then you have your preparing your sermons. So, um, yeah, I've, I've always had a plan to read through the Bible that's independent of the preaching. Right. Now, they, they interplay. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so that's what I would encourage. So that this is the, early in the morning is just in the Word, and uh, and you know something may emerge that you're going to preach down the road, but that's not the purpose. Yeah, the purpose is encounter um, with the risen Christ yeah. through the through the living text. Yeah. Um, then then you go to work. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's been the key to me. I, I for me uh, so that that um, my devotional time is not my work time. It's, is that something that you've seen in the lives of other pastors too? That that's just difficult. Oh yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing challenge, but it's a it's a challenge worth fighting for. Um, and I, I think I win more now than I used to, but I you know it's still a challenge. A friend, an older pastor took me under wing. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I was I was before I was thirty seven. Let's see how old would I have been. Probably early 30s. And we were talking just about this. And so he said, um, uh, you just need to get up earlier in the morning because we had new kids were coming to the family. Get up earlier in the morning to spend that time in the text. And I forgot how the sequence went. So I'll just go to the point he made. He said, the Lord Jesus wants that time for you with, with you and for you more than you do. So ask him to get you up <laughs> at an appointed time. Because I was talking about the schedule. Yeah. It's too demanding. Sure. How am I going to do that? Sure. He says, leave it in his hands and ask him to wake you up. And then he says, do not set an alarm. <laughs> so this is, not, this is 19, let's say 79. No, no, no. Uh, it would have been 1981. Doesn't that? Okay. 1981. He sends me home from this meeting. He says, don't set your alarm anymore. You go to bed and say, Lord Jesus, I know you want that time for me more than I do. So I'm going to trust you to get me up. I've never set an alarm since. Really? Nope. Even when I travel. Really? I set the alarm when I travel in case. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case the Lord Jesus wants you to sleep a little longer. And, that's and, and that's he, remarkable. And he also said that. Yeah. If you if you're not wakened, he knows you're you're fatigued, and you need just a little more sleep. That's trust. Well, it worked. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's fantastic. The, I, I've the, never heard that before. That's a that's a. It's very interesting. Oh, well, it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm trying to think right now. Can I work that into my life? And then, and the the immediate question is, do I trust the Lord like that functionally? Yeah, you don't have to. Here's here's the point. You don't have to work it into your life. Yeah, He's going. Huh. He, do you agree? He wants that more than you do. I do agree that. So he'll he'll get you up. 
This is uh, we're recording this on June twenty seventh. It was at ten fifty three uh, a.m. and I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna trust you and okay. I'm gonna move into that. Let's, I'm gonna see. Uh, let's touch base down the road. I'll, I'll, I'll connect with you another time, Daryl. Last question for you. Um, last question for you, and it's it's a question that's come to mind just as we've talked. Um, having been in different facets of vocational ministry, what would you say to the congregation of God's people? What would you say to the church? Um, I'm talking about the members of the church, the attendees of the church, those who are invested in serving and giving and uh, sharing the gospel and using the gifts that God's given, all, all of the, all the people. What would you say to those people about how they should interact with their pastoral staff, with how they should uh, seek to live in light of, because I think there's a, a huge spectrum where there's people who overvalue and overestimate the godliness of pastoral staff, and then there's some who, who certainly, and thank God I'm not at a church like this right now, who at, I think at times treat their staff like servants. Yeah. Um, uh, they are servants, and they're there to serve, but it's interesting to, to be treated that Who's way as different. servant? Yes, well, that's what it comes down to. And so, yeah. would you speak into that? <clears throat> well, I would say uh, to my brothers and sisters, your first job in relationship to the pastor is prayer. Pray what? Pray... Well, we'll pick up with what we just talked about. Yeah. Pray that the Lord Jesus will get them up for that appointed hour. Mm. Now, for others, it could be in the evening sure. or in the middle of the day. Sure. So let's leave that sure. some flexibility. So you, you pray that uh, the Lord will work a deep intimacy with your pastor. So your pastor is alive in that intimacy and works out of that intimacy. Second, to pray for spiritual protection because the preachers of the word are going to be on the front lines of spiritual attack. So to pray for that protection. Third, if the pastor's married, to pray for that, to pray over the marriage. And if they have children, then to pray over the family. Uh, and then to pray for wisdom, yeah. to know what to do and what not to do. Yeah. So I, th- I think they would, the first call would be prayer. And then I think, secondly, would be to un- try to understand just how the church works and how gifts work. And so I've tried to nurture a congregation recognize Brett's gifted in some ways, but not in others. Mm-hmm. People will use the phrase strengths and weaknesses. And I go, no, no, it's not a weakness. You're just not gifted. It's a matter of gifting. Yes. So a congregation needs to look at a Brett or a Daryl and say, okay, who is this man and who is he not? And let's empower what he is and we'll complement what's not. Yeah. And it'll thrive. So those two words, pray and then empower and free for the unique giftedness. Yeah, the freedom and, to, to yeah. do the, the gifted things. Right. And, and, and to and find the help church, for the, the things that are The church will flourish. Oh, that's good, Daryl. I'm so appreciative of you taking time to come and uh, sit down and have this conversation. I'm so appreciative of you as a man uh, and, and as a pastor in the city and uh, someone that have, you've lived your life in a way that those of us who've come in a little later than you into the city of Vancouver, uh, we can look up to you. And so I thank God for your faithfulness in that way. I thank God for your love for 
Jesus and the way that you seek him in his word. God's given us his word that we might find him there. And uh, the way that you've taught and modeled that and, uh, and have taken time to pour into us. It's, it's, not, you've, it's interesting as a professor, uh, I, I have taken a couple of your classes and I've never, you're never there in a transactional way. It's very interesting. You're not a transaction. I'm here to deposit some stuff and leave. You're there to impart. And um, I, I've received from you in that yes. way. And so I'm Thank very God. thankful for you, thankful to the, the ministry that you have had and currently have in this city and the way that God is using you. So thanks for coming on the podcast, taking time to uh, strengthen us and encourage us as we listen. And um, yeah, may God continue to bless you in the writing work that is ahead and the, and the preaching and teaching and mentoring that you do uh, offer, the encouragement that you do offer to pastors. So thank you so much. You are so clearly gifted and called, Brent. And I bless you. Thank you. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.